Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday night, and I'm going to use this opportunity to try to do the first podcast of the week. Today's talk is being sponsored by Moshe Katz from Florida, from North Miami Beach. Tells me he's, uh, among other things, a Shalom Meshav over there in the yeshiva. I've known a few people, I think, who went there. Anyway, th- thank you very much for the sponsorship. Welcome all of those and are grateful to all who have continued this uh, podcast. I wasn't sure uh, who to talk about, to tell you the truth, until a few minutes ago. I was looking around and I see that uh, this week is the yard set of the Ksav Sofer. And that's one that caught my attention. Very interesting person. And so I'll try to devote a few minutes to him tonight. The Ksav Sofer, obviously, I think everybody knows is the son of the Chassam Sofer. That's probably all they know. Um, Our hero... um, Lived in the 1800s. I didn't live long. He <clears throat> died when he was like 56, 57 years old. I obviously did not have a good constitution. And uh, just a very interesting personality. So here we go <clears throat> to Hungary. This is a person who spent his life, uh, his 55, 58 years, in the kingdom of Hungary that once upon a time existed, <clears throat> but no longer exists. Just like the kingdom of Poland long ago was much larger than the current country of Poland, so too, the kingdom of Hungary that once existed was much larger than the current state of Hungary. At that time, back in the 1800s, the kingdom of Hungary included what we call today Hungary, plus Slovakia, um, plus a big chunk of Romania, Transylvania, part of the kingdom of Hungary, and plus a nice Gaelic of... um, what we call today Serbia and those areas. In other words, it's much larger than the Hungary of today. After the First World War, Hungary was cut down heavily in size. And the Hungarians have never gotten over it. Okay, big deal. Now, uh, there were eventually close to a million Jews in the Kingdom of Hungary. 800,000, that's very large. The Kingdom of Hungary that once existed, uh, at the time the South Server was born, the capital city was not Budapest. Uh, but uh, Pressburg, Bratislava, and uh, which which today is the capital of Slovakia, not the capital of Hungary, but that time was the capital of Hungary. Now the Chassam Sofer, I think many people know, was the Roman Pressburg for many years, from 1806 to 1839, something like that. Long time. Now, the Chassam Sofer, I think I did him once here, I believe. I'm pretty sure. The Chassam Sofer obviously had a very interesting life. Uh, among other things, the Chassam Sofer was married, then his wife died, and then he remarried. From round one, it, it, when he married a woman much older than himself, he had no children. Uh, but he did not divorce his wife. He was loyal to her until she passed away. And she died, if I remember correctly, around the time he was something like 50 years old. And then 
very famously, at age of 50 or, or thereabouts, he remarried a uh, the daughter of Rabbi Kivager, who was like 20, and was a widow already at 20, 19 or 20. You know what I'm saying? No, she married Chavis at 16, 17. Then her husband died a year or two later. That could happen. So she was an Amara. Uh I think she had a brother or a cousin learning in the Chassam Sobers Yeshiva. And that's the Romeo and Juliet situation. He played Cupid. And uh, according to the Madrega of that time. And by the time the negotiations were over, they got married. From this second wife, round two, his name was Sarah, Cyril. The Chassam Sofer, in his 50s and 60s, had like, I think, 10 or, 10 or 12 children. And, which is just interesting. And uh, one died or two, you know, but they had a lot of survivors. A lot of boys and girls. And our hero was from this round two, obviously. So that means that the Ksav Sofer lived from 1815 to 1871, 1872, something like that. And um, so if he's 1815, that means his father was in his 50s, was 53 Psalm was born in 1762. So he was 53 when he was born. Think about that. A father was 53 years old when the son was born. But did he have you of that? The same had happened to me. Me, myself, and I. But that's because of the Holocaust. You know what I mean? My parents got married round two. Because of the Holocaust. Uh, but in the Psalm Sofer's case, it was along the lines that I just described. Now, interestingly, he had a very happy second marriage. And so our hero grew up in a happy house. You know, this is it's very interesting to talk about the married life of the Chassam Sofer, but I don't want to, I just want to just mention it in the context of the Chassam Sofer, of his son. And um, to grew up in a normal house. Um, his father was, now he's, he's born in 1815, and his father died in 1840, 1839. So he was 24 when the father died. Keep that in mind. And uh, the son... Nefer grew up in Pressburg with the father as the chief rabbi and the Rosh Hashiva. The Chassam Sefer was outstanding in both positions, which are not identical. The Av Basin is, means you run the Kehil, the, the basin of the community. You like the Rav and the Posek. And the Rosh Hashiva is a, a Yeshiva job. And the Chassam Sefer was very charismatic. And um, the exact numbers I've seen, so many different numbers over the years, they're constantly changing. Uh, and they uh, used to say there were 700 students in Pressburg. Now I see it's more like 250, maybe 300. But whatever it is, it's still a sizable number of boys who were attracted from all over the place by the charisma of the Chassam Sofer. That's what it was. The uh, Kehillah was uh, not all from the story of Chassam Sofer. And I'm sharing this with you because it's no gay to, the Ksav, uh, to his son, the, the Chassam Sofer. Pressburg was a city which had a firm element and a modern element. You understand? They just did. Then by the time the Chassam Sefer came, there were a lot of modernisha uh, types over there. And when the Chassam Sefer, who was childless at the time, applied for the job, you understand? So the non-firm wrote him a letter. I think it's very interesting. I'll read you very briefly the letter. Not many people know about it. In which they say, we're in the non-firm element of the community, and we don't mind you being a rabbi. We too much aslocha. Get the heck off our back, right? Keep your fingers out of our business. Listen to this. Samachnu kizem Moshe ish ola ish sar b'shovit aleinu. We're very happy 
that you, Moshe Sofer, are going to be the new rabbi. And we heard you're an intelligent fellow. They're writing to the Chassam Sofer. Let's come out clear in front of God. And, you know, if you are playing with us, we'll be playing with you. And we'll follow your directives. But if you try to use the stick on us, no, if you try to use your position as Rabbi of Pressburg to force us to do things we don't want to do, we'll counterattack. Now, I'm be parrots, we'll fight. And let me warn you right now, your allies will not be strong enough to withstand us. So bug off. Shekan be Pressburg, we just want you to know before you get to the city, most of the business is conducted by Gentile merchants, and with uh, uh, officers of the government, because it was the capital of Hungary. Because it is, many of us who are merchants and uh, big shots and we deal with the government, we dress not in your style, in the frummy style. We dress in modern Geisha clothes, European style. We, we, we dress in height of fashion. We do shave. And we shave on Cholmoid, and we shave on the sphere. Don't you say nothing about it. Our women, our daughters, do wear mascara and things like that. They do wear wigs. You understand? So in other words, they dress with fashion. They go wherever they want. Some for, you know, contemporary things, and some to help with the Parnosa, so they got to dress fashionably. And these customs and lifestyle that we have, we're sure a guy like you, an old-fashioned rabbi, is not going to be happy with this. You ain't changing nothing. The situation requires it. We're not going back to dress like Hasidim or something. And therefore, we want you to know, we're willing to sign your contract, but it was a stipulation that you, the Rav Mordasa, can't summon anybody and cuss him out. No, we are not interested in hearing Musa Shmuzah from you about our particular lifestyle. And you better not try to put anybody in Cherem here. The status quo must be preserved. So that's what the Chassam Sefer was told at the beginning. Now, to tell you the truth, uh, he didn't mess with them. But on the other hand, notice he didn't go in and attack them. However, he did address the front, and he did criticize these things, I would say in general, without naming names, and they didn't like it at all. And more importantly... The yeshiva he attracted, even if it was two or three hundred guys, right? The yeshiva he, he attracted was what he called was um, a lot of boys running around in the kahil, and you know you don't want to see all these frumaks everywhere, and they probably made fun of the women dressing on sneers, and it really provoked over time the anger of the non-frum, and they attacked him, 
and they used their influence to have the yeshiva closed down for a year. This happened in the 1820s. And uh, the Samsung had a hard time with them. Then certain things happened, which would be too long to go into. And the situation turned around radically, and he won. The yeshiva was reopened, and some of the leading guys against him died. It's a constant Misa. But, and, and life went on as it was before, and he remained for the next 15 years till his death. As the rabbi did whatever he wanted, but on the other hand, he didn't change them. So our hero, when he is 24 years old, now he learned by his father, he married a rich girl, and I remember the father-in-law promised to support him for 15 years. So he had, so to speak, if you want to call it that. But he's learning impressively. Let me tell you something. If your father is some sofa, where are you going to, where are you going to get better than that? Uh, the father wanted the son to succeed him in the worst way. Uh, this is actually funny, because if you know some sofa, Shita, he holds that if the son is right, the kill has to hire the son as the successor. But just because Chassam Silver holds that way doesn't mean the kill is going to listen. Because they say, you hold that way, we don't hold that way. Then second of all, politics is very strange. If you force a rabbi on a community where they hate being forced, you're creating a cancer, you're creating a poison situation. So it's quite, quite delicate. At the end of his life, Chassam Silver wrote hints to the community, I hope you choose a rabbi very quickly. <laughs> uh, uh, I think I would like in the yeshiva my son should give the share clearly. Um, you know, if you see anybody locally that you think is a bar hachi and happens to be related to some, you know, uh, important officials here, you might want to consider him. That was hint, hint, hint. And then the Chassam Silver died in 1839. And his particular chassidim, his followers, and the yeshiva and the basin, at the funeral, they immediately announced you know, Avram Shmuel ben Yom and his son. No, they they proclaimed without any right to do so uh, that the son should be the successor. And you know how it goes. It was the funeral of some suffer, so nobody said boo. I remember Jacob Katz talks about this in his uh, in his bio of the what do you call it? Uh, you know, of the Chassam Silver. Okay, and uh, I remember Reb Daniel Prosnitz, who was the uh, you know, um, number two in the basin, and uh, he immediately by the head he said like this: "I myself am a cobble. The son is the next row. No, I put myself under your shoes. Made a dramatic uh, scene. Then so through this coup d'état, the Ksav Sofer, at the age of twenty-four, became the rabbi of Pressburg and the Rosh Hashiva. Uh, now it happens to be. Uh, so let's put it this way: so with the Ksav Sofer, we have. What I would refer to roughly as the Avram Ben Arambam situation, which you have a great father, followed by a great son. The son will always be in the shadow of the father, but the son's pretty impressive too, as opposed to situations that you find, especially in the Hasidic world, the Yeshiva world, is a great father, and the son is a mediocre, but he's the son. Uh, that's not the case here. He wasn't mediocre, uh, but he was 24 years old, and there are many stories. That the Ksav Silver took over and was very scared, and so on and so forth. Uh, as I said before, his health wasn't great. There's a famous mice, I don't know if it's true, they all write it, that uh, it's too good to be true. Then it was when the Ksav Silver was five or six years old, he got very sick. After all, talking about the early 1800s, what was the medicine at that time? And he was basically on death's door, and they even had the candles for the Chavar Kadisha. 
I forget exactly how the story goes. It's very famous. And by the time it's over, he was dying, and the Hassam Sofer sort of like retreat. And the Hassam Sofer was a makubal, among other things. He retreated into a room, and by the time he came out, having said whatever he said, the doctor said, the kid turned around, and the Hassam Sofer said, I gave him another 50 years. And he died 50 years later. That's how the story goes. Uh, but whatever it is, here's someone in delicate health. Uh, I would say he was a delicate person. I get that impression altogether. But he rose to the task. And he devoted the rest of his life, which wasn't that long. Uh, he was 24 when he became the rabbi. And he was 57. So he's 33 years. It's not, it's not short. But you know what I mean? He didn't live a long life. And uh, he ran the show, which had already been set up by his father. His job was to guide the ship through stormy weather. And that's what he did. The lifetime, the biography of Xav Sofer is interesting because of the times in which he lived. This was the kingdom of Hungary. And he was the role of Pressburg, which was the most important community during the 1840s, 50s, and 60s. He became rabbi just before the 18, in 1839. There's the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Now, if you know anything at all about Hungary, not that you should, these were stormy years. Uh, Hungary was a kingdom which was ruled by the Austrians next door. The House of Habsburg was the Austrian royal family. I've mentioned them many times. They're very important in European history. And one of the things about the Habsburgs is that they were the Archdukes of Austria and the Holy Roman Emperors. And their armies liberated Hungary from the Turks. And therefore the Austrian kings, or the Austrian emperors, were also the kings of Hungary. They ruled Hungary. Now the Hungarians didn't like this. Hungarians didn't want to be ruled by some foreign. And they wanted a basically hungry for the Hungarians, you know what I mean? And uh, foreigners out. And they didn't like the Habsburgs. And all I can tell you is that big tensions built up all during the 1840s, which reached a, a explosion in 1848. That was the year that most of Europe had revolutions. In Hungary, they had a, a, a war of uprising, like a national insurrection. They defeated the Austrian army. They set up a Hungarian republic under a, a Kusha Laish, and they prepared to repel the Hungarians. So they rebelled against the king, and this put the Jews, especially the Frum Jews, in an extremely awkward situation. The Frum Jews are not into rebellions. Uh, you know, they're rather conservative in Hungary, called Homer. On the other hand, the Hungarian people, everybody around you, was so revolutionary and so enthusiastic about this war of independence that it, you know, it's like dangerous to go against it. And our hero had to, you know, guide the, the, the firm Jews. Many of the rabbis looked up to him, even though he was young. He's the Pressburger Rov. He, had a, he was running the yeshiva. Uh, and he had to walk the tightrope, not to get the Austrians too angry, not to get the Hungarians too angry, which therefore means you'll get, the Austrians will be a little angry at least, and the Hungarians will be a little angry. You will be unpopular to some degree. You just want to survive. What happened in the long run was in the beginnings, the Hungarians won, but then the Austrians called in the Russian army from another country, and the Russian army crushed the rebellion. And then the Austrians came back in and hanged everybody. And they're very cruel to put it down. So all this happened in 1848, 49, 50. This was Franz Josef became the emperor. 
in that year, the end of 48, to the next 60, 70 years, 68 years. There were very dramatic things happening. And the economy is growing. You, you see what I'm saying? For the next uh, 15 years, Hungary was ruled like a conquered province by the Austrians. Prior to 1848, the Hungarians had a certain amount of autonomy. Now they didn't. And so if you want to get anything done, you had to go to Franz Josef and his, his officials. They're very uh, cruel and tough. Now, in the case of our hero, you see that the country is going through a lot of turmoil. That's Klape Chutz. Now, in addition to that, the Jewish community was going through a lot of turmoil, Klape Pnim. Because this is the Iker years of the rise of non-Orthodox Judaism in Hungary. It's sort of reformed, it's sort of conservative, it's called neolog, which is a Protestant term. And it caught like wildfire in many places. And the idea of a reformed Judaism of one kind or another wasn't exactly the same thing as in Germany, but it was different in its ways. And most importantly, they were in favor of organs and shalom, things like that. And uh, they really thought that just as in Germany, the Reformed and the Liberals kind of crushed the Orthodox in most places and swept them. like a mighty tidal wave, they were going to do that in Hungary as well. However, in Hungary, the firm were larger, and the firm saw that in Germany, the Reform had closed down the yeshivas, and the firm were determined that that shouldn't happen here, and so they fought all kind of bitter uh, struggle with clean tricks and dirty tricks to try to prevent the Reform, the neologues, from succeeding in closing down the yeshivas and replacing them with Reform-type institutions, whether... Uh, more traditional type of reform, less traditional type of reform. That's what it was, okay? Now, therefore, I'm presenting to you a very confusing situation. You're living in the kingdom of Hungary. There are a lot of Jews there. The governmental situation is nuts with the Austrians running it, not the Hungarians, and the Hungarians, the Austrians, and who's sticking it to who. And then the Jewish situation is very confused because in this town is a reform guy, in this town is an Orthodox guy. They're fighting with each other. The reform guys trying to get the government guys to close down the Orthodox because they're anti-modern. You know, the Orthodox say we're not anti-modern. And they say, "You really? Why do you what? Why you got to pay us? You know, why do you walk around with the with the Shrimal or whatever they did? You see? And it, it's under the impact of all this pressure. And you have what they call the Oberlanders, who were the from Jews, very from, but subject to very heavy pressures of the type I'm describing, and they felt compelled to modernize to some degree in terms of clothing and knowledge of the language of the country and things like that, uh, which gave them this sort of acculturated kind of look, although they were from, and many of them went to yeshivas. The Hassam Sofer was famous for many things, among which is his recognition that if you want to fight reform, and more importantly, if you want to fight modernity, the atheism and everything goes along with that, there's no philosophy that works. You have to set up yeshivas and turn them into institutions of mass education. Historically, yeshivas were elitist institutions for the best and the brightest and the few. But the Chassam Sofer already saw that ain't working. And basically, 
his big insight, I've spoken about this many occasions, was either you put a kid, a boy, through a couple years of brainwashing at a yeshiva in his teenage years when he's most, uh, what's the right word, influenceable, subject to influence, or he'll go off to derech. And so everybody normal has to go through a yeshiva experience. Not everyone will come out learning so much, but at least they'll come out for front. And then at least they have like a shot in the arm, sort of like a vaccine against modernity. That was more or less his mahalach. And that is the foundation of our modern chinuch system today, in which it's not true that all the yeshivas are for the brilliant and best and brightest guys. Everybody will want to go to yeshiva. Some yeshivas are stronger, some yeshivas are less strong. But to go through the experience, I just wanted to give you a grounding, like I say, a shot in the arm against modernity. So this is, and that's why the Chassam Sofer not only built up his yeshiva as much as he could, but his students he encouraged very much to try to make their own yeshivas, uh, imitate them to the degree possible, because wherever you go, either you'll gather the local boys together and, tr- and, and introduce them to learning and frontkite, or, or they'll go off to derech. And that's what all the students did. The Chassam Sofer and his successor is famous for producing legions of wannabes, which is a good thing. Everybody wanted to be as much like the Rosh Hashivans in Pressburg as possible. So if I graduated from there, and I got smicha, and I became a rabbi in another town, I'm going to try to set up a yeshiva in another town. And they all did. And this became the mark of the overland. And, you know, if you're lucky, you'll have a yeshiva of 50, 100 guys. Otherwise, you have a yeshiva of five guys. That's good, too. Plenty of places had that. Plenty of places had a yeshiva of four or five guys. I know it sounds funny to us. They didn't take it funny at all. And so, the our hero was at the very epicenter of this. Now, listen closely. I told you before that the Chassam Sofer knew, from before he even came there, that there is a left-wing element in the community. And I think he knew he ain't converting them. You know, a modern family, they want their kids to have a regular secular education, the daughters are dressed normal, in, in normal fashion society. They're not going for no Chassam Sofer business, you know what I mean? The women should draw sleeves up to here, and a bad shaitel and whatever, you know, they, they ain't going for that. Uh, and he knew that. So his general policy was to sort of like fence them in in the sense that they shouldn't be much be on the others, and they'll go their way. And that included the idea he cannot go too far. Get it? He can't go too far. It's not like living in Meisharim. You don't control everything. And so you have to have a certain amount of flexibility, and there's nothing wrong with that. That's simply the sign of somebody who is a rob of a kehill. Kehill includes all kinds of elements. It certainly did in those days. So you have to run the kehill in such a way that appeals to the from as well as to the non-from. Now, in his time, this situation was aggravated because the non-from now have an ideology, and he struggled with it the best he could. Uh, so did his son. The Ksav Sofer, who was exposed in the 1840s, 1560s, to ever more powerful... Uh, pressures of westernization out there. Like his father, uh, talked one way but did others. They all said, Chodesh Asim in the Torah. But not really. You know, if somebody, the Chassam Silver made exceptions. Some guys could go to college. Uh, we have a whole list of those people. Uh, some people can go and, you know, dress with a, a European dress. Uh, some girls can, you know, go to this kind of school. 
You see what I'm saying? This idea of song. Yeah, that's very classic. And the Chassam Sofer and his son, the Chassam Sofer, they spoke Yiddish. They didn't speak German. Not well. I mean, maybe you could speak German somewhere. Not not great. Uh, this is the old days. Jews live entirely in a Jewish environment. They spoke Yiddish. You know, if you're a young, educated person in Pressburg, you have some kind of education in German. Yiddish sounds funny. Uh, the Chassam Sofer, even though he's a Chodesh Hatsim in the Torah, they shouldn't have speeches. They shouldn't have sermons, all this business. He allowed a couple. I mean, he, has, he had a student or two from Germany, and he, you know, let them uh, be the, uh, what shall I say, the modern Orthodox preachers in the city. Based on the idea, you have to accommodate the left-wingers to some degree, because if you cut them off and press them too hard, they'll go total, they'll go total after Derek. And the Ksav Silver did the same thing. Now, this is interesting. Because as I said before, in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, the the, the, the two lines were forming against each other like a war. The from and the not from. And uh, they went at each other all over the kingdom of Hungary. And the result was the left became more left and the right became more right. The students at Hassam Silver, had a thousand students at least, uh, many of whom were rabbis, things like that, they had a left wing, a middle wing, and a right wing. The right wing was Rabbi Hillel Kolomayer, Rabbi Hillel Lichtenstein, and his son-in-law, what was his name? Uh, Schlesinger, Kibiyaz Schlesinger. They were in the extreme right. And they, Mamish, wanted to make Chodesh Torah. They gathered together a whole bunch of Ramonim and Mishkolts, and they passed the Tachonus of Mishkolts, which says any shul that has a sermon at all, a drusha, like you have in shuls in America, is automatically a reform shul. Any shul that has the men and the women on the same floor, even with a totally kosher mechiza, is a reform shul. Things like that. You know what I'm saying? Any shul in which a wedding is performed in the shul is a reform shul. Okay? Which is why you see people don't want to get married inside shul sometimes. And things like that. Now, who entitled them to do it? They they themselves. The Ksav Sofer didn't go along with them. They were very angry at the Ksav Sofer in 1840s, 50s, 60s. You know, among themselves, they wouldn't say that out loud. They say, because you're not leading in, in, in sufficiently right-wing direction. You're not extreme enough. The Ksav Sofer was of a very diplomatic and like his father, very smart dude. And he realized he's not just dealing with a bunch of right-wingers. The whole world is not munkash, so to speak. you got to paskin and lead and direct in such a way that you can conduct the rove of the seabor. And his policy was to hold on to the rove of the seabor as much as possible. Therefore, as I said before, he was more moderate in many ways. Now, I want you to understand, we're talking about somebody who, in addition, who from the age of 24 on, was running a basin. Think about what I just said. Running a basin on a daily basis. Then was also, at the same time, running a yeshiva as a big yeshiva. And we'll see under him it grew immensely. And that means in the Chassam Sofer Hungarian system, it's not like the literacy yeshivas. The Rosh Hashiva, that was Chassam Sofer himself, gave three, four, uh, three or four days a week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, 
That's how it works. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, he gives a shear in and a shear push it. In other words, you give an in shear and then a bakia shear, as we would call it today. That itself is not simple to give three a week. Plus a Chovas Alavavas class. Plus on Friday, a class on Kumash and the Rashi Ramban. Plus your Radea classes, or Shulchanar classes, I should say. It's a heavy, very heavy teaching load. But I'm just saying, the Ksav Sefer, I don't care whose son he was, if he wasn't a Bar Hochi, he would not be able to hold the position because he had to turn out three Shiurim a day. Right? At least three days a week. Wednesdays, you Chazard. And Thursday and Friday was the Bechinas. That's how it worked in Hungary. And every kid was tested. And you had to know your Gmarji, Tosis, and Marshal, basically. A little bit more. The Shir Iun was um, what you find in the Kesef Nivchar, which I've quoted in the past. It's a fantastic safer. And Sugyas, you understand? But they did the Sugyas not in the Kesef Nivchar style exactly. But as you go forward, you know, when you get to a Masechta, when you get to the page that deals with Adam Zomimim, so all of a sudden you do the Masechta of Zomimim, so to speak, like that. Right? But they're classic uh, sources. And for the Bechinas, you have to know the Situr Hashitos, as they call it. You know, what is this thing on Aim Zom and how many, uh, you know, what's uh, how many sheets of Rishonim are there? <coughs> and tell me about eight is she, I'm talking about Zima. How many sheets are on that? And, you know, the, all that sort of thing. Uh, so it's a, it's a heavy schedule. That's what I'm trying to say. It's a very heavy schedule. And you better be a gong because for the lower classes, <coughs> it may be enough to just do the Situr Hashitos. At the higher classes, they want more Kedushan. Now, I'm not finished. In addition to that, so I know we have Kedushan Kesav Sofer. That's where it comes from. His class he gave over the years in Yeshiva, over 30 years. He also was like his father, a posek. He got chalice from everywhere. And so he's got to turn out X number of chalice and shubas, which is a huge load. So you have, that's what I mean when I say Abram Benarama. The Kesav Sofer had to be a giant himself, even though he would say, I'm not like my father. And most people would say that. But so what? The Ramban Rambam is not like the Rambam. But he's still pretty big. So Ksav Sofer was able to keep the boat afloat and maintain the institutions of the rabbinate, the community, and the yeshiva for his lifetime in the 40s, 50s, and 60s of this very turbulent uh, century. Being that he had to deal with all kinds of people, he had to watch out how you poskin and how you... Um, what's the right word, how you uh, issue guidelines for community actions at home and across Hungary. Uh, and that's why when I mentioned, uh, I spoke some time ago here about Rabbi Hildesheimer, who was a rabbi in Hungary, Hungary, I say, from 1851 to 1867 or 8. All during the time of Ksav the right-winger Hungarian rabbis hated him. They thought he's like a YU and worse you understand? Uh, Adra, the fact he was from, made him more dangerous to them. And they cursed him out. They said things about him. It's just unbelievable. The only rabbi that was friendly was Iksav Sofer. I remember that. Right? Because Iksav Sofer understood there are certain types of boys, that's the right yeshiva for them. You see, the right winger would say like this, either you go to extreme right wing yeshiva or the heck with you, or you don't fit in anywhere. And then you go off to Derek and goodbye. 
Who cares? Shalom. The person who feels a Christ for all claw says like this, I need Yu, I need Mir, I need Ner Israel, I need Liquid, I need a lot of things. You see? And this boy, this will be the right place, and that girl, that'll be the right place, and so on and so forth. That's what I mean when I say the South Server had a broad vista. It's also true, in my opinion, this is just something, you know, I tell you endlessly. All I can show you with is what I have for my kishkas. That's all. I'm not saying this is correct. This is how I understand it. That's, I think the Saab Sofer, an old family, was scarred by the closing of the yeshiva in the 1820s by the enemies of the Saab Sofer for a year, which was a close call. And I think, living when he did in the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, he was always afraid that somehow or other the neologues, the reformed Jews, would persuade the government to close down the Pressburg Yeshiva, which would have been a, a coup. A, and that's what I would do if I were them. That was like the main place that was turning out frummies. And um, if you could close that down, then, you know, you would have the Yeshiva. And indeed, a major goal in 1840s, 50s, and 60s was to set up a Jewish theological seminary, which would be the place for turning out Hungarian rabbis. And that was a reform idea. And they say, see, the rabbis are preaching Hungarian, and they'll have a college education, and they're very, very modern and patriotic and loyal to the king, and they'll be better than the Orthodox. And the Saab Sefer knew this. I believe, in my opinion, it's one of the reasons also he didn't push too far to the right. He always had to watch whatever he does it's going to be observed by the non-from. And he had to be careful, walking like a tightrope, not to make a mistake, and hand a weapon to anti-from to be able to be marshaled him to the government. Uh, now, this was a big danger all the time. Here's what happened. He had many Talmudim. Uh, I think they say under Psalm Sofer at 2 300 so, uh, under South Sofer, he also did. And um, they were turning out new graduates every year, giving smeek out. Uh, the Chassam Sofer and the Chassam Sofer were very aware that the role of the individual communal rabbi is very important in Hungary, like everywhere else. And when they learned in the yeshiva in Pressburg, it was the idea, you're not stop learning here in the Veltaran, we want our graduates to come out and become Rabbanim and Dayanim and things like that. And the best guys in Yeshiva will be the rabbis of important communities. And they'll be able to lead the community uh, and fight the reform by making themselves impressive looking to the Balabatim. You see, you can't just come into a community and say like this, we're going to fight the reform. And say, why? Why should we do that? The reform makes more sense than you. No. In Pressburg, they taught a guy how to make a speech, how to dress properly, the chetzonis is important, how to carry themselves with dignity, never make a chel Hashem, show class, you know what I mean? Don't act crass. All, all which is important, and you have to know how to paskin. So you can't just learn the Gemara and stop and develop around, you have to know how to paskin. Very important over there. And therefore, the Pressburg Yeshiva was always the target for the non-from. What the Ksav Silver did was, he took his best Talmud, who he thought was a Bar Spitzer was the name, 
and um, he really liked him a lot. And he actually, he took this Talmud and, and married him to his sister. Uh, Sofer, let's put it this way. The Hassam Sofer had, I don't know, 10 children, something like that, including five girls or something along those lines. And one of them, Kornitzer, uh, one of them married Kornitzer, who died very young. That would be the relative of uh, my friend Mrs. Garden, Deborah Garden. She's a Kornitzer. Uh, and so, therefore, the Ksav Sefer had a widowed sister and he married him to his best Talmud, Spitzer. And he sent him to be the rabbi of the Frum community in Vienna. In other words, after 1848, when the Hungarian Revolution was suppressed, X number of, of Jews moved from Pressburg and those kind of areas to Vienna, which was not that far away, which is the capital of the empire. And these were from Jews, Nusach Pressburg. So he sent a Pressburg guy from the yeshiva to be they rubbed there. This was called the Shif Shul, the Shif Gasser Shul. They eventually made a big shul in Kehillah on the Ship uh, Street. Shif Gasser is the Ship Street. That became the Haredi headquarters, Nusach Oberland. Okay? This is the first very from area in Hungary. The Shif Gasser is no longer there. And uh, I think Hitler destroyed it. Anyway, uh, this Spitzer, he was given the several jobs. One was to be robbed there and hold the Kehill together, not to be uh, Mushba from the regular Kehill, which was much more to the left. But his other job was to lobby the government, which he did do. And it took him many years, but he was able to figure out, Spitzer, who were the important machers in the imperial bureaucracy, because it was a dictatorship at that time. Under Francios, in the first 20 years, was a dictatorship. Absolutist monarchy. Bureaucratic absolutist state. What they called the Bach period. Alexander Bach was the prime minister. And he was able to persuade the relevant ministers, the bureaucrats, that this school in Pressburg is very loyal to the dynasty, is very not revolutionary, and um, has a curriculum, and it's in the interest of the government to support this orthodox institution for political reasons. And somehow or other, he bamboozled them. In 1857, listen to this, Spitzer was able to get it that the Pressburg Yeshiva was recognized as a university. It's amazing. And what that meant in most practical terms was Anybody who's a Talmud in Pressburg Yeshiva is putter from the draft. The same thing like in a university student or in a Catholic seminary. This is a very high madrega. As far as I'm aware, the Pressburg Yeshiva was the only institution anywhere that it was our Yeshiva, no limunichol, and uh, what do you call it? It was recognized as a university. Now, the Ksav Sofer wanted this so much, he was even willing at different times, to talk about having some English studies or secular studies in university, which really made the right wing super angry. In the end, it wasn't necessary, so he didn't do it. You understand? The Spitzer got the recognition from the government, just as a pure yeshiva, they didn't do it. The reality is that as the 1850s went on, 1860s, more and more guys in the yeshiva, not a lot, but a few, 
uh, simply took college courses on the side, as we would say today. And um, it's very famous, the Ksav Sefer, who was very practical. He had to be. He recognized certain types of guys there's an essay for. Not everybody. Not everybody. So you had all types in the yeshiva. So I'll just name you, I'll put two names side by side to show you the difference. Let's say Chaim Zonnefelder on the one hand and Rabbi Breuer on the other. Shlomo Breuer. Chaim Zonnefelder was a Talmud Mubak of the Ksav Sofer. You don't need me to tell you he's ultra-Orthodox, right? He ended up at Haredes. Chaim Zonnefelder. You know, just to say the name is everything. Zero Limonichol, etc., etc. And he moved from Pressburg eventually to Eretz Israel and so forth. To by him, it's cool learning. On the other hand, yeah, Shlomo Zonbroyer, who's a Hungarian guy, Oberlander, and he wants to get a college education so that it will help him get a rabbinical position and fight the reform. Because he wants to get a PhD, Lishma. I'm serious, I'm not kidding. Uh, how do you do that? Well, uh, you got to take CLEP tests, which means you have to take courses here and there. I don't know exactly how it worked. And every yeshiva is a snitch world, you know that. The dormitories are full of snitches. And they snitched on him. It's a very famous case. And the Ksav Sefer was told that, you know, uh, Breuer is taking college credits or something. And it's very famous. He said like this, I don't want to know. Is he there every day for davening and for learning everything? 100%. How's he doing the Bechinas with the Gemara Rashi showing him the Marshal? 100%. Is he a from guy? 100%. Don't ask, don't tell. I don't want to know about it. You, you get it? That's not being a hypocrite. That's being, uh, what's the right word? Flexible when necessary. So the same yeshiva can produce a Chaim Zonnefelder and at the same time a, a, a Breuer. And as you know, by the way, Rob Breuer got his PhD. He ended up in Frankfurt. And it's famous, the family will tell you, they say, he never used, I think he put it in the bathroom or something, he never used, uh, never read an English book again. So uh, it was all just for the purpose of getting the rabbinate position and fighting to reform and so forth. So it's a funny world. Uh, it's not exactly like America today. But it's very fascinating. Now, once he got this recognition of university and the draft exemption, all the rest of it, this was a big guarantee that the non-form won't be able to close the yeshiva down. And it couldn't help but make the yeshiva tremendously attractive for people because if you go there, you're part from the draft and all kinds of other things like that. And so the yeshiva doubled. So it went to 500 under him. Under the father was like 250, but under him was like 500, maybe 550. That's huge. Okay? And that gave you a lot of guys to work with. And you could, out of the best guys, he turned out, all these people came, Chashu Rabbanim and Rosh Hashivas and things like that, all over Central Europe. And so in this regard, he was very successful. As the 1850s, uh, and by the way, he strove very successfully to keep the atmosphere that his father wanted, which was in in, in Budapest, and in, in Pressburg, uh, you go to sleep, not not like the literary sheep, sheep is you stay up late and learn. You go, you go to sleep early, but you wake up like four in the morning, something like that, uh, even in winter, and um, you have the first Seder in the cold weather, um, and then you go 
after that first learning Seder to mikvah, hot mikvah, uh, you come out and dry off and uh, get your cup of coffee. And I think then you go to Shachris. I think it's like that. Maybe there's another Seder and then you go to Shachris. And it's a very famous story. I read it, I've mentioned it many times. Like Sal Sofer. <laughs> Just to give you an idea what a what a guy was. You know, he was there once in the in the winter. He got a mikvah. They gave him his robe. He dried off. He got dressed. He gave him the coffee. And now he's like this. Who needs Ghanaian? This is Ghanaian. <laughs> right? Notice, you have a mikvah. You got an early Seder. Then we're going to have a davening. And the Hungarian sheep is a davening very important. They watch how you daven. Then we have a first learning Seder. In other words, how is Ghanaian different than any of this? Who, ne- who needs it? We got it here. We get it? And this is what they try to, uh, 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 you know, foster among the students. And it's pretty successful. Now, all during this time, there were left-wingers in the community. He had to, as I say before, you know, tread carefully, not to let them get away with too much, not to push them too hard. Okay? By the time we get to the 1860s, the two sides in Hungary were like at loggerheads. The Reform, the Neologues, had a big campaign to set up a Jewish theological seminary. The Yeshivas were all afraid. First of all, they were against it because it would be a, a, a Makar Tumah, as they saw it. It would be Kfira. And second of all, um, it'll, it, it, they might then use it to say, we have a seminary, so you can close the Yeshivas. Which I think they might have done. And it was very touch and go. And uh, the Austrian government, which ruled the place, was kind of sympathetic to the neologues because they portrayed themselves as being rather traditional, which in some senses they were. And it's a famous scene the South Silver and a bunch of Rabbanim went to see the Emperor Franz Josef. And they begged him, and tears in their eyes, not to stick it to him and all the rest of it. And uh, he didn't exact, there are many legends that are associated with this visit. But um, the long and the short of it is he didn't promise them what they wanted, but I think he got the idea that they're very strongly opposed to being forced to change. And he kind of respected that. In 1867, let me put it this way, 1866, Francis got himself in a stupid war which he lost badly to Prussia. As a result, Austria was weakened, and Franz Josef said it like this, uh, the smartest move on my part will be to reach a uh, a shalom with the Hungarians. I know there's a lot they don't like about my rule. Uh, let's see if we can make a compromise, an ausgleich, as they call it. I'll still be the king of Hungary, but they'll get a lot more power to rule themselves. And they worked this all out in 1867. It's called the Compromise of 1867, ausgleich in German. And in Germany, from that time on, the Kingdom of Hungary, although it was part of the Austrian Empire, was a separate unit, and for 90% of the situation, they ruled themselves. So they really were, in many, many regards, an independent country. When that happened, so the, the Hungarian government, the new Hungarian government, said we want to organize our society along um, you know, organized lines, including religion and education. And we have, in Hungary, 
you know, two religions, the Catholic and the Protestant. So we know what that is. Catholic Church is automatically organized by the Vatican. And the Protestant churches, the Calvinists particularly, are organized by their denomination. But we also got the Jews. The leaders of the Hungarian national movement were um, liberals, Legabi the Jews. In fact, their name was Liberal Party. They were in favor of giving the Jews civil rights if the Jews agree to assimilate and acculturate. Now, what does that exactly mean? Uh, you'll speak Hungarian. Uh, you'll regard yourselves as Hungarian. Uh, you know, you identify with the nation. And what you do as a private religious business, you have freedom on your own. Now, the Orthodox were just shooting the bull. Right? They say, oh, we're absolutely Hungarian, all the rest, even though, you know, it goes, I mean, they consider themselves Claudius throw. But they can play the game and shoot the bull with the best of them. And, uh, but the Neolog said, we should really become Hungarian. And so the government, uh, the Hungarian government, under its famous minister, Utvash, very famous person in Hungary, minister of public enlightenment, he called a Congress of Jewish Communities. They should all gather in Budapest and decide how to organize the Jewish denomination. The Calvinists and the Protestants have like a top board, like a pyramid, you know, the board of directors at the top and the smaller communities listen to them. So the Jews should do the same thing, something like that. Well, the problem is that Hungarian Jewry was split into two, the from and the anti-from. And they had very different ideas of how things should be. The from said, we're willing to organize with everybody as long as you recognize the authority of the Shulchan Aruch. The non-from said, we ain't doing that. Then the from said, well, we ain't got nothing to do with you. The non-from said, you better have something to do with us. You're Jewish or Jewish. You know how luckily we're all Jewish, which is true if they have a Jewish mother, a Jewish. And we simply have to recognize they live in times in which Jews do not have the same religious opinions on basic subjects. The Frum said, we're not good as that. You understand? And they tried to have a conference where everybody got together in one room. <laughs> one of the Orthodox rabbis, Rabbi Yermi Alev of Uhai, you know, uh, let's put it this way, a guy got up and said, let's live B'Shalom of B'Shalva. You know, let's work this out peacefully. And then the Orthodox guy got up and he took the reform sitter and threw it on the ground and stamped on it. Well, all hell broke loose. So much for peaceful uh, reconciliation of differences. Then the two sides really went at each other. Now, what's going to happen? In the course of all this, the Ksavsover, who attended the conference, was forced, as were many Rabbanim in Hungary, to take a uh, more right-wing position. And they switched to become very strongly right-wing on the following question. We can we want to divorce from the non-from. There should be two Judaisms in Hungary. The non-from and the from Jewish religion. And that way, there'll be two separate areas and the non-from will have no ashpa on the from. And of course, the from will have no ashpon and non-from. So in other words, if I'm living in a town and there are 20 from families and a thousand non-from families, we 20 from families will not legally have anything to do with the, non, the thousand non-from families. They can build a big temple like they want. Gesundheit. We will build a small shul. 
but we will run our own stuff our way. And we don't have to pay taxes to the non-from community. We have nothing to do with them. It's like a freedom of religion. In this case, freedom of religion, the Orthodox, not to be gutted to the non-Orthodox. Now, the non-Orthodox bitterly oppose this for a whole bunch of reasons. Especially, it's going to make them look funny if the from Jews say you're not Jewish. You know, I mean, to Goyim, they say, how do you tell me you're Jewish? The, the religious-looking rabbi tells me you're not Jewish. You know, that bothered them a lot. And many fights broke out. The Saab Sofer um, came to side with the, those who say, "Listen, we got to do this. We got to we got to completely separate from these from these um, not from." So did the Marm Shik, who was a Talmud of Pressburg. And uh, uh, generally speaking, the middle moved to the right. That's the best way to put it. And they eventually were able to formulate a position which is said like this. We are not Gurus, the others at all. And uh, they were able to persuade the government. Baron Etvash, who supported the, the, the non from, he died in the middle. And the guy who came after him didn't care much about the subject. And by the time the dust settled, which was in 1871, uh, the government basically agreed, the Hungarian government basically agreed, uh, not happily, but they basically agreed. And they said, since the, um, the Jews can't agree, when the theology part, as we see, we simply have to recognize that just like the Christians have the Catholics and the Protestants, and one has nothing to do with the other, the Jews have the Orthodox and the non-Orthodox. It's just the way it is. And uh, we have to, you know, we have to, you know, smell the coffee. Uh, and so the Hungarian parliament passed a law in which indeed it recognized there are two different Jewish religions. Matter of fact, the non-from said, we're the Jewish religion. Because Klal Yisrael, as a as a uh, group, uh, has always included every element, which is true. And the Orthodox are introducing a new element of Pirud. Uh, and the Orthodox are like, we don't care what you say. You know, you want to call yourselves a Jewish religion? Fine, let you be the Jewish religion. We'll be the Orthodox religion. We don't care what you, you can call us Popeye. <laughs> we just want to have nothing to do with you. And the Chassam Sofer was one of those that was leading the charge in this. And as they say, he succeeded and then died. He succeeded uh, in getting this passed, along with the others, the other Orthodox representatives, through the lobbyists and things like that. But then he, uh, and once they did, here, let me, let me fix the whole, give me a second here. Here, I have to pick up where I left off. Uh, I was talking about this um, reality that what happened in Hungary was that the government actually passed laws in which they authorized the Jews, if they wanted to, to form two entirely separate groups. And that's what the Frum did. And the Ksav Sofer and the others, who in their own community were championing the idea of a united Kehel, um, do you understand what I'm saying? In Pressburg, the, the community was from. I don't mean the individuals in the community. I mean the Kehillah organization was under control of the from. But they had to be careful not to push the non-from too hard. Elsewhere in Hungary, the non-from were in charge in some places. And that really bothered the from. What's happening now is, in every community, there'll be two Kehillahs. You get it? If they wish. And... Uh, once that law was passed, 
So here's Hirsch before Hirschianism. Sans Rafael Hirsch tried to import the Hungarian system into Germany a few years later. But here's Hirsch before uh, Hirschianism. In Hungary, the Ksav Selfer and elders, under the pressure of the events that I just described, uh, did, once they obtained the law, issue a ruling, famous Psach, which is it's incumbent on every from Jew to secede from the regular community and join the Orthodox community. Uh, no matter what the regular community says. And if there's, I'll just give an example of what I'm talking about. Suppose you're living in Budapest. And suppose the Cahill of Budapest is under the control of the non-from. But the non-from say to the from members, listen, we want to show our way, but we recognize part of the community wants a different type of show. And we're going to take the tax money that you pay us, and part of it we're going to put in for a from show. Uh, and not only that, a kashras under from control. And things like that. We'll build a mikvah. Knows what do you have to complain about? We're willing to accommodate you. And they meant it. But the Ksav Sofer and the others said, no, no, no. Any community that's not run by the from is ipso facto traif. And it's the biggest avera to be a part of that community, even if everything is kosher there. And so as a result, they kind of pressured and forced as much as they could all the from Jews throughout the kingdom of Hungary to, you know, uh, what's the word, fish or cut bait, you know, step on this side of the line or that side of the line. And what developed in Hungary was the famous tripartite situation in which you had, in many, many places, like two um, kahillas, the regular kahilla and the and the from one. And the regular kahilla sometimes included a from element. This was called status quo, status quo. Which meant these were the Jews who uh, who said, listen, why do we have to leave the community? The community is very nice to us, and uh, they're willing to uh, supply whatever we need from the Yiddishkeit perspective. And anyway, I don't want to give up on being killed. My parents are buried in the cemetery. Whatever the case is, they didn't want to leave. According to South Sofer, it's a big affair. And you know, now you got to leave. And this was the pressure from 1871 down till Hitler. Okay? And even after Hitler, to be perfectly honest. That's to be, you know, a separate kill. And that's why when you go to, for example, you went to Budapest, I was, before the corona, I was leading a group in Budapest, you know, one of my groups, and you saw the three synagogues, two of which are operational, one of which is not. And one shul, the Dohani Street, is the Reform, there's the Neolog, and uh, somewhat church-like, somewhat. Then there's the Kaczynski shul, which is Orthodox. And then there's the other one, I forget what it's called, a, a corner or two corners away, which was the status quo, which was under repairs, which is a big, giant, beautiful synagogue from the outside. And it was run from, but it was part of the regular Kehillah, and therefore a from Jew wouldn't step in it. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? By the way, you had a lot of Jews between over the next 70 years who, let's say a guy needs a Parnosa, okay? From guy. And uh, there are no jobs for a shaykhet by the from community because they're already filled up. But by the non-from community, they have their own vadakashras for the Orthodox members, the status quo, status quo. And the guy gets a job, for example, let's say, as a shaykhet for the status quo. It could be a from guy. So his shrit is fine. 
You get what I'm saying? No, he doesn't do anything wrong. He's a pious Jew. He's got Yerushamayim. Everything you want. First of all, the from listen to what I'm telling you. First of all, the from won't eat on it, in principle. Second of all, he won't eat it. <laughs> I know people like this. I knew people like this. He's a shaykhid by the Ebb. He won't eat his own shkita. Because he said like this, listen, for Parnosa, you got to do what you got to do. I have to have a job. I have to support a family. So I'm getting a job as a shaykhid by the Stasis Club. But as a from Jew, I can't eat what I shaykhid. Even though he knows what he shaykhid himself was a perfectly kosher as far as the Yerida is concerned. This is a situation we had in Hungary. And Nixav Sofer reluctantly was part of this. Now, I say reluctantly, I'll, t- I'll explain what I mean. Um, uh, this happened in 1871, I, I believe. I think it was 1871. And um, he died in early 1872. Spitzer, his uh, student and uh, brother-in-law, who had got the university thing from the government, he was at, at that point trying to make like a Hersheyan community in Vienna. And because he figured they were going too far to the left. Uh, and he held this huge gathering, which was very dramatic. And he um, was crying and things like this. And he said, you know, we got to do what we got to do. And uh, my brother-in-law supporting me, the, the Ksav Sofer. Right? He, got, he got letters from everybody supporting him. And uh, the Austrian government said, I guess, this ain't hungry. You can't separate anything. <laughs> You ain't going nowhere, okay? You can run your own uh, Kehillah, but you're not, uh, you're part of the general Kehillah also. There's no separate uh, two religions over here. So this was in the air at the time. Now, listen closely. The Sav Sofer was exhausted from all this stuff. I'm sure his health wasn't great. As I told you before, he had delicate health. And... Uh, the, all this was, you know, uh, took too much out of him. And he died early in February in 72. Um, as long as he was alive, and when he ran to kill up, he had plenty of neolog types uh, living in Pressburg, uh, as you would expect. But he was a smart enough cookie to never push the thing too far and kind of leave them alone and managed affairs in such a way that the non-from never broke away and made their own shoal or made their own kill or anything like that. The non-from agreed, maybe not so happily, to be under the from kill. So here you have a situation which is the reverse of same surveillance, right? The reverse of what was in other places. The the from were in charge, and the question is how do you deal with the non-from? After the Xabas ever died under his son, son was not as good as the father. He was not as capable as the father. And the son was more of a right-winger. Okay, so guess what? So he tried to clamp down in a right-wing way. 100 or 150 families seceded from the kill and made their own kill in Pressburg. They said, what's, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. What are you going to say to from? <gasps> you can't break away in the killer? You do. You just fought for a whole right for people to say, if they don't agree religiously with the killer, then they can make their own killer. And the from said, well, that's because it's in a from direction. He said, no, no, no. The law doesn't say that. The law says anybody who doesn't feel comfortable with the Jewish situation can make their own kill. They say they made their own synagogue, their own rabbi, the whole everything. And I can tell you, from the late 1800s down to Hitler, in Pressburg was always a bitter uh, fight between these two Kehillahs, which would not have happened if the Ksav were to live longer. 
because he understood, as his father did, despite the popular image, the job of the communal rabbi is to manage things in such a way that the non-from are not pushed to the degree to go form something reform. You get it? Uh, that takes a great deal of chachma. And you can see what Ksav Sever was by the fact he was able to pull this off. Now, I've just described the life of a person who lived in tumultuous times. The Ksav Sever, like the father, left a lot of farm. He got your Chadushim because he gave Shurim all the time over the years. Uh, no Shas. He has these Shalas and Shubas, which, by the way, uh, recently now they started reprinting two separate variants. Very nice, the new Ksav uh, uh, Sofers. I have, like, on uh, some of them that came out on Yorday and Ebenezer, I believe. I got them in bookstores in New York. They're coming out with, like, a deluxe, very nice edition of the Ksav Sofer stuff. And I've seen also in the bookstore in Shopsies a separate edition, which was also uh, smaller, but also nicer. So it, these are more user-friendly, so to speak. But they're classic chubas of the time you were the type you would imagine. He has on the Chumash and that sort of thing. If you like that, you know, I've, I've used it from time to time over the years, much more years ago when I was giving a formal Chumash or long ago. Um, and you have his drushes and things like that, and also his Chumash boards. And here, as a historian, they're really fascinating because they always reveal behind the scenes. And I'm going to give you, because whatever he's talking about really is applying in, in, in the style of a good darshan, a good homiletician. This is the job of a rabbi. To make the parsha of the week, the parsha of the week. Relevant to the local situation. I'm going to share with you something. Maybe I'll mention again on my Chumash uh, podcast, if I rec- if I'm able to remember. But I cannot forbear. Uh, o parsha v'ayichit. Because it's a famous Ksav Sofer. Uh, he said, why does Yaakov beg to be buried in um, in Israel? He says, Yaakov was afraid they'll be buried in Egypt. The Egyptians will give it big cover like they did when they eventually buried him. Um, his 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 uh, his grave will become a shrine. And as a result, the Jews will be highly respected as the heirs of Yaakov. And the Jews will gain a, a great deal of social acceptance in Egypt. And then they'll never want to go to Israel. So Yaakov Vino realized this. It's, I want to be buried in Chutzlars. Uh That way, the blessing that I brought to the land, that the famine stopped, will be forgotten because I won't be buried in Egypt. Give it another generation or two or three, and they'll forget I ever existed. And then their natural anti-Semitism will come out to the fore. They will eventually enslave and torture the Jews, and the Jews will realize how bitter the Gaulish is, and then the Jews will agree to return back to Eretz Yisrael. Okay, so it's a part, but it's more than a part. He's repeating his father's sheet on emancipation using the parsha as a as oak. The Hassam Sofer was the one who called out Jewish civil rights in Europe and said, I understand why people want to have uh, equality, citizenship, equal rights, and non-persecution, but it's not good. A Jew should expect to live in persecution until Mashiach comes and then you go to Eretz Yisrael. I'm dumbing it down, but that's the heart of what he said. You know what I'm saying? It's a very famous uh, parable that the Chassam Silver 
described about the process of emancipation, in which he pitted himself against all current Jewish thought. Uh, the the parable was that once upon a time there was a king who had a son, and then the son ticked off the king. The king didn't like him anymore, and the king exiled him to a far-off island. And the son is on that far-off island, you know, desert island, going crazy and wanting to return to the father. You know, sorry that he angered the father. And then one day the son looks out and he sees from far away a fleet of ships. And he said, hooray, my father's coming to bring me home. But it turns out the father sent a fleet of ships to the desert island to build the son a fancy schmancy palace. And now he's going to live the life of luxury on that desert island. And the son is crying because the son says, I don't want to live a fancy schmancy palace on a desert island. I want to go back to my father. And you see the, the mushal and the nimshal. The Jews shouldn't look for a fancy schmancy life in, in Gullis with civil rights and all the rest of it. He wants to go back to his father. He wants to go back to Eretz Yisrael. So what I just said on Parshavayichi is a roundabout way of the South Sofer, at least to my mind, making the same statement. Yaakov Avinu doesn't want the Jews to be comfortable in Egypt because then they never want to go back to Eretz Yisrael. And by the way, as it is, 80% never want to go back anyway, even with the slavery. So what I mean by that is when you, if once you know what I just told you about the times in which he lived, maybe you can read up a little bit on your own if you're interested, then go and look at the Ksav Sofer on the Parsha. And very often you'll see, and his drushes, very often you'll see uh, reflections of the of the current times in those speeches, in which he's trying to use the homiletics of the Parsha of the Week to hammer home uh, truths to the um, to the audience. The Jews of Pressburg, uh, by and large, were from, and Pressburg was boasting for the 19th century that we're better in Prague, you know, we have yeshiva, and we have much more Yiddish God, all which is true, until Hitler came along and destroyed the whole, destroyed the whole business. Uh, but uh, as time went on, Pressburg, including yeshiva, a culturized and became much more Western, even though very from, and got to the point, like by the 1900s, if you lived in the Hasidim, all the rest, say, oh, don't go to Pressburg, it's like going to Nehru Israel, they have college. You understand? It's funny. Like if you went to Pressburg, it's because from a certain perspective, going to, like, to a left-wing place. Even though that's not true at all. It's baloney. But in the public image, it had that. But the Ksav Sofer represents the generation in which he's able to walk it and, and hold both sides. The left and the right, even though he was under pressure throughout his relatively short life from both sides. I just think it's an interesting story. And with that, I wish you a good night. Once again, we thank our Sponsors, Cats is from Florida, Motion Cats. And I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidcats.com.